Hello, crafters, character builders, and characterizers. Welcome, welcome. I'm Brooke Warner, and I am here with my right-minded co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, we're getting a little crafty for the next few weeks, and I don't mean sly or cunning or foxy, though we are kind of foxy, just saying. People tell us that. (laughs) It's true. People do tell us that. What I mean, of course, is that we're getting a little literary, a little deliberate, uh, and maybe even a little analytical. And we're getting craft-minded. That's right. And that's why we have titled this show and this series Craft-Minded, because we're kicking off a six-week craft series uh, this week. And I'm super excited about this, Brooke, because we've never done a truly craft-focused series before. And I think every writer has, you know, a certain type of love affair with craft. I'll put it that way. I know that I do. I I love thinking about craft. I love reading craft books. I love talking about crafts. And I was thinking the other day, I have this neighbor who is always out in the street tinkering with the engine of a classic car he owns. And I think that's what I'm like with writing craft. I'm almost always reading a craft book. And it's not just because I like thinking about the mechanics of a story, but craft is existential and philosophical for me. And it's a, you know, just an imaginative window into uh, a story uh, because the way a writer presents a story tells us a lot about their worldview. And another analogy is that, you know, craft is the tools that you have in your writer's toolbox, but it's also a sensibility and a lens to see the world through. So I think that to be a writer is, you know, essentially a lifetime study of craft. Yeah, that's so well said and totally mirrors my feelings. In the memoir classes that I teach, I especially love it when we do craft. Uh, I like, of course, the process and emotion part of writing and teaching writing, um, but craft is essential. And obviously, more writers need all the craft that they can get. Um, And because there's so much to know, there's also so much to grow into. And sometimes I see that, you know, with writers who I've followed their careers and I've read their early work and I've read their later work. And you can see how people's craft skills get, you know, stronger and stronger over the books that they read. And so I thought it would be fun to take a moment to really dive into what we're covering this week, which is characterization with the amazing A.M. Holmes. Uh, And you won't be surprised to hear that I know about A.M. from her memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, uh, but she's definitely more known for her fiction. And she is kind of a perfect guest for this because she's an established fiction writer, a big idea fiction writer, and then kind of from what I gather, couldn't help but write a memoir about finding her adoptive parents in her early 30s when her biological mother contacted her out of the blue because it was just such an interesting series of events that followed kind of a racket, really, and a really interesting you know, psychological dive into those characters who are real life people. So it's a a worthwhile memoir to go back and read. Now she's written a new novel. And she's, as I said, she's mostly written fiction. And I just thought it was, you know, she's an interesting person who is already predisposed to pay attention to character details, you know, and then she's in her memoir, of course, watching this sort of stranger than fiction story unfold. But, you know, AM is known for her characters, so that's why we're going to talk with her about that today. And she does, interestingly, she writes a lot of men. She writes a lot of characters who are nothing like her, which she'll speak to in the interview. Uh, and as I said, her novels really center big ideas. I actually saw an interview uh, that said if she were a man, she would be more famous than Jonathan Franzen. And I thought that was just an interesting observation because like Franzen, she writes these epic 
character novels. So Grant, let's talk to our listeners about characterization. I mean, I think people know what it is, but really like, why does it matter? And what are the good tenets of uh, characterization or rather the tenets of good characterization? Yeah, it's interesting because you say, uh, saying that we all know what it is and it's true. We all know what it is, but it's a very mysterious thing to explore, I think. Um, and there's so much to characterization and so much to think about. And I think like when we, we, we all know it, you know, when we read a character who takes us over in a powerful way. And we also, you know, know when a character is a little lacking and a little flat, even in the most skilled author's hands. That's what I find interesting. And I think it's almost like love in some ways. We just fall for some characters and some, sometimes it's hard to say why. So I think there's something ineffable and mysterious about good characterization. And I think when we encounter one of those powerful characters, we should pause and think about what is going on to make us so compelled by them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, authors do hone, and this will come out really, AM talks about so many of the skills and her approaches that she's honed over the years, you know, to, to write characters. Um, and I think about it, it, you know, it is like an actor honing the skills of method acting or a comedian, you know, honing the skills of mimicking people. And part of good characterization is so much about narrative choices. And, you know, I was thinking uh, during AM's interview, because she talks about how she likes to tell a story through an unlikely character's eyes or a kind of secondary character's eyes. And I was thinking of the great Gatsby, you know, Gatsby is a mysterious and compelling character in part because he's characterized by rumors and hearsay and the observations of Nick, the main narrator, who tells the story as a witness. And so Gatsby's characterization comes from others, in other words, at a, at a distance. We're never exactly sure who he is. And that's different than a characterization that is closer in point of view to the, the main character, a characterization that reveals different levels of thoughts, for instance. And I'm thinking of, you know, the advent of psychological realism in the 20th century versus the advent of psychology really changed characterization. You know, novels increasingly tried to get into the heads of their main characters. And that's why an interior stream of consciousness technique was so popular with writers like Virginia Woolf or William Faulkner. So their characters were created in kind of the polar opposite to Gatsby from the inside out instead of the outside in. But that's not to say, you know, characterization, that's, it's become an overwhelming trend to go for that psychological essence. But I don't think it has to be like that. You know, the uh, Milan Kundera, he wrote this book, The Art of the Novel, which is one of my favorite books about novels. And he actually rejected that psychological realism approach because he held that it really focused on individual agency. And he thought what determined us was more about the naked force of the world, you know, and it, he meant by that, like the cold bureaucracy of a, of a Kafka novel, you know, where a, a character is trapped or at the mercy of this larger force. And that really makes sense because uh, Kandera grew up, you know, in a totalitarian communist country. So it wasn't so much about individual agency. So this is all to say that characterization is just a series of decisions about how to present reality. And I think about when I use the word reality, I, I think about this moment in my first writing workshop uh, when I was in college and I was critiqued for the dialogue in my story. And I, I kind of came back defensively and said, oh, but this is lifted straight from real life. And it was. I literally eavesdropped to a conversation and kind of wrote it down. And my professor wisely noted that good dialogue isn't a transcript of real life. You know, you have to think about how to dramatize that dialogue and how it's infused with your, your character. And, and AM talks a lot about that as well, which I think is really interesting. So 
Yeah, so it's an exhaustive subject because I'm obviously rambling about this project going on <laughs> at length. Um, I'm curious, what are some other things that you're looking for when you're you know, supporting writers to think about characterization and memoir? Yeah, but you covered so much good ground and it is something that I wish more writers would think about. I mean, of course, experienced writers know how monumentally important it is. And I think early writers that are just getting into things need some time to let it you know, soak in just how important it is. You know, I was thinking about character dynamics, you know, certainly you were talking about the psychology piece and that interplay of characters off of one another is something that's so important to pay attention to. Uh, in memoir, the character dynamics often, of course, involve you, right? How you think, react and behave. And the thing is that we react to things differently based on our upbringing and our experience, our cultural context and education, all of those things. So there's just a lot of factors. And I'm a bit obsessed with dynamics because we're also all very different people, uh, depending on who we're interacting with. And so... You know, the same person can be the dutiful daughter, uh, the reactive partner, the absent parent, and human beings are inconsistent or paradoxical in our reactions and our behaviors. And so some of my favorite books are those that really capture that reality of our paradox. Uh, and in memoir, I'm looking for moments of interaction. And also what you were saying in dialogue, you have to interrupt your own dialogue and interpret what's going on on the page. And so those big chunks of blocky dialogue, you know, I'm, I'm very reactive to that. I'm like, okay, you have to break that up a little bit and show us what the reader is thinking, or rather the writer, especially if it's a memoirist is, is thinking or feeling in the midst of all of that. You know, like, what does it mean to you, the writer, if your mother abruptly gets up in the middle of dinner and walks into the other room, right? Is there a history there that that says something or is it not a big deal, right? I mean, we don't know if we don't know the dynamics of your family. And there are just all kinds of things, you know, what kind of history is there in a family where certain remarks are made about a person's looks or their intelligence or how do people get scapegoated or hemmed in in your family of origin. We all play these roles. So these are things that I feel like, you know, they're they're out in the open for us to see or know, and especially if we're writing about our family of origin. And it's up to the writer, which is, you know, another question that I, I love that we ask AM and she gets into, like, what are you paying attention to? You know, how do you draw from what you see and interpret and then put that into your your book, whether it's a memoir or a novel? And and that's all part of this topic of characterization. Yeah, there's so many different ways to think about characterization. And, you know, just to mention a risky way, I think, but a really interesting way of characterization. I'm thinking Brooke, uh, of Rachel Cusk, and I know we've mm -hmm. both uh, read her outline trilogy and we're both big fans of it. But it is, uh, it, it's a, you know, so <laughs> if you put that forward in a writing workshop, I can't imagine the comments you would get back. And a lot, <laughs> a lot of them would be about characterization, such as, you know, how about characterizing the main narrator who we know almost nothing about for three whole novels? She's sort of this empty vessel, though she does do this amazing job of characterizing every single person in her world who she comes across. So it's uh, an example where you're not characterizing your main protagonist, uh, but clearly Cusk still prioritizes characterization because you are immersed in these other people's stories. And there are other novelists who excel at this sort of, um, 
I guess what we'll call passive narration, you know, and I'm thinking of Murakami who has at least a couple novels in, in which things just happen to the narrator as if they're not really an actor in their own lives. And going back to Cusk, I just, you know, when I think about what do I know about that main character, that narrator, mm-hmm. and I really know nothing. Uh, I take nothing from after reading all three books, except that she's a really good listener and she likes listening to other people, but otherwise she's almost like a ghost. And that's part of its intrigue to kind of go along with her as a mirror to the world. Right. And it seems to me, um, you know, it's, it's like a partly a study in contrast, you know, like being a, a good reader is such an important part of learning the tools of characterization because you need to be conscious of how characters develop on the page. I was so intrigued with Rachel's trilogy because it was so different mm-hmm. and, and she was kind of bucking that trend. You know, people were saying that she was, I, I feel like someone said she was gutting the novel, <laughs> something yeah. like that, just turning it inside out. And and so it made me think, you know, for our listeners to consider, like, who are some of your favorite fictional characters and why? Mm-hmm. What makes a person in a book fictional or real stand out as memorable to you and why? And just reflect on that, because when you're working on characters in your own book, you want to consider what were those things that stayed with you. And last spring, I was so privileged to have Kiese Lehman teach a class for my Magic of Memoir series, and he taught on character which was amazing. Uh, And the thing that stood out for me about his teaching was that he said that characters need to be singular, uh, which is the word he used. And it's really stuck with me. You should be able to see a given character as uniquely them, he said, singularly them. And so if nothing else, we are each singular, (laughs) you know, human beings and therefore characters are singular. So it is the writer's job to capture that singularity on the page and to make your characters real and memorable. They can be terrible. We don't have to like them, but they do need to be dynamic and deserving of our attention. Yeah, we definitely don't have to like them. And I actually hate when people use a character's likability as a criteria for critiquing a story because one person's likability is another person's unlikability. And what's more important is how powerful the character is. And and so many of our best characters are actually the most hateful or our most conflicted. And A.M. Holmes actually talks about that as well, how she doesn't write for a character's likability, but writes about all of those contradictions and the character's singularity, as you put it, Brooke. So with that, I say we go to break so that we can jump back into exploring characterization with the indomitable A.M. Holmes. Hey, everyone. I just want to remind you that a big writing event is coming up in November. It's called National Novel Writing Month. And uh, here are some things to think about uh, if you've done it or even if you haven't done it. One, part of its premise is not to wait until someday to write your novel because someday tends not to happen. So make your novel a priority and write it today, you know, during National Novel Writing Month. And the way that that happens is, is that National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, it's a 30-day challenge to write 50,000 words of your story. So let's do some math. That's about 1,700 words a day. That's very doable. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. And I always describe NaNoWriMo as one part writing boot camp and one part rollicking party. And the boot camp part is, of course, you know, showing up every day and, and honing your discipline to, to write and to keep writing and tracking your progress and being accountable. 
And then the party part is that we have this amazing community surrounding uh, NaNoWriMo. It takes place online, takes place in person. We've got a thousand volunteers around the world organizing writing gatherings in your community, probably. So yeah, write with others, have fun writing. Also write the novel of your dreams. You know, we say a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. So sign up for that midwife. It's all free on NaNoWriMo.org. I'll see you in November in NaNoLand. Welcome back, everyone. We're so thrilled to have with us today A.M. Holmes, who's the author of 13 books, among them the best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, the novels This Book Will Save Your Life, The End of Alice and Jack, and the short story collections Days of Awe, The Safety of Objects, and The Things You Should Know. She also has a brand new book out called The Unfolding. She writes for film and television and teaches in the creative writing program at Princeton University. Welcome, A.M., Thank you so much for having me. We're absolutely thrilled to have you. And, you know, you're joining us as part of a special series we're doing on craft. And it's such an honor to interview such a seasoned writer and author about craft. Uh, And we chose characterization, which is very specific and yet very important. And so I'd like to ask you about stepping into characters who are so different from you, which you do really often, but particularly in your most recent just released book, The Unfolding. So I wondered if you could kick us off by talking about how you go about conceptualizing your characters and what are some of your best strategies for bringing fictional characters to life? Sure. You know, I think the one thing is that for everything I write and every book and every short story, it always changes a little bit. And some of that has to do with sort of what the idea is behind the story or novel and sort of who the characters are. But I'll talk about it a little bit. One of the things that was always very important to me was my teacher, which was Grace Paley. Um, And Grace used to talk about writing the truth according to the character. So for me, that's always sort of been thing one, which means I think not focusing on what I think or what I'm compelled by, but what I believe would be accurate for the character. And so in that case, I think about where did this person come from? What were they doing before they got to the moment of the story, the world of this novel? I asked myself a lot of questions about their background, their history, their point of view, their experiences, so that I would say I come to know them in a way that then allows me to begin to explore how they might react, how they might view the world around them. You probably also you know, have noticed that I, I often will pick, I would say, almost like a least likely character to tell a story. So okay. certainly in the unfolding, you know, I've got this group of, of men who are you know, rich, older, white Republicans talking about really the, un, the you know, impact of racism and sexism in some ways on our country. So they are in some ways very unlikely. But I also find that by picking the least likely person to sort of be telling a story, it it sort of lifts up and turns the um, point of view slightly one direction or another. And I would say allows me another way in that lets me explore things through a very different sort of set of experiences, really. That's so interesting, A.M. I love the the lesson that you took from Grace Paley to write the truth according to the character. 
that just seems like a, it should be a maxim of uh, of writing. And I'm curious uh, with with that in mind uh, about how you create dialogue. And I read in one review that the dialogue in your new novel is propulsive. That was the word for it. And so you're using dialogue here to place your readers, you know, right into the heart of a conversation as if we're a fly on the wall. And we get an immediate and intense insight into your characters in this way. So I'm curious just um, how you think of dialogue and what role does dialogue play for you when it comes to creating not just characters, but scenes and that truth of the character, as you mentioned. Well, dialogue is, is for me, I would say, absolutely essential. And, and sometimes it's funny with this new book, um, my editor in England called up and went, so much dialogue. Um, <laughs> I think it didn't even, I hadn't even noticed is the truth. Um, I think, again, it's, and, and part, part of the dialogue piece of it comes from an orientation sort of early in my writing life towards theater. And I would say that writers like Harold Pinter and Edward Albee, who was literally you know, an in-person mentor, but also a sort of spiritual mentor to me, and even the English playwright Carol Churchill, whose work is very different and sort of outside the box. But the way of using the line to both say the thing you want to say and say something else. I always think of that like in the way that Harold Pinter, somebody can ask, how is your cereal? And just the answer would be nice. But that word nice could say so much. So I think of it as like double word score in Scrabble. Like how do you use the line to both say something that reveals action that pushes the story forward, but also that tells us something about the character or the underlying sort of state of mind or psychology. It's interesting because I, I don't think very much about sort of literally narration. I don't sort of account for how people enter rooms and move around. Um, and I've had to do whole passes of books where I'm like, do a pass for the trees, like literally, like where is the landscape or what is happening here? So I think a lot about letting my characters own the space of the story and, and almost kind of trying to get out of their way in some sense. And it's interesting because going back to the sort of first question a tiny bit, I've also had times when a character is difficult um, and you think, is this character, why are they so difficult? And sometimes it'll be that I realize, like with um, the character of uh, Harold Silver in May We Be Forgiven, Harold Silver was difficult to write in the beginning because I was writing a man who didn't know himself. And so only as Harold Silver came to know himself did he become easier for me to work with, if that makes any sense. So that was also for me a very interesting and sort of revealing thing about both writing and character. That's so fascinating, AM, and such a great segue into my next question, which is, you know, I, I see too often with my students writing, uh, you know, the same kinds of descriptions of characters. And so beginning writers will have a character enter into the scene and immediately we get what they look like, what the character is wearing, and then more of the same with each subsequent character. Obviously, that's, you know, kind of a sign of amateur writing. But um, I, I wanted to ask you about what you were just talking about, you know, like how your characters behave and what their behavior tells you, your reader about them. And so just as you were talking you know, about how that character unfolded, how much do you try to map out your characters, you know, either with direct or indirect characterization? And then how much do you let your characters unfold or, you know, get to know them uh, or they get to know themselves, as you said, as you go? That's a really, really interesting question. And I think there's a, there's a couple ways that I would approach it. So on the one hand, in terms of what you were saying at the sort of early part of your question, when students write and they introduce a character and they say, 
Bob walked into the room, turned left, picked up the knife and thought about putting butter on his toast, but then changed his mind and decided that he wanted to stab Susan. And you're like, well, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so one of the things that I always talk about with my students is they need to know all of those things. They need to know how Bob walked into the room, what Bob was thinking, how Bob feels about his toast. Maybe his toast didn't toast properly, whatever the relationship with Susan is. But we don't need to know all of that necessarily right away. And so I talk to them a lot about sort of limiting and narrowing down the details um, and, and thinking about what in each line, really, and in each sort of movement through a piece, what we need to know and also what we need to know to know more about who we're with and why we're there. So that's sort of one piece of that. And I think often people feel like, well, they need to know it to write it down and, and to understand why they're writing the story. So I also, sort of the second part of your question, I often ask students, and I do this myself, to interview a character. Why is this character here? What do they need to get out of the story? What are, what are their sources of tension? What are their concerns even about the story, about who else is in it? So everything from sort of things that are specific to the story to also what kind of toothpaste does somebody use? Why does the kind of toothpaste tell us something more or less about them? And I would say, you know, if somebody only uses a little tiny travel size toothpaste, is it because they're worried they won't be here very long? Is it because they get them for free somewhere? What what does each thing mean to them? And And that kind of information has sort of two levels. One is that absolutely before I start writing, I'm thinking about who my characters are, where they came from. But then obviously as I write my way further into something, I learn more. And then I would say I take a lot of notes on the side. So I'll write down all those things, the same things that my students you know, write down. Bob is blind in one eye. Bob tends to stumble, you know, all the different things. But then I won't necessarily use them until it seems relevant to the action of the story or to the sort of drive of the story. You know, that's so interesting, the the interview technique. And it was making me think it almost sounds like method acting to me. So I wanted to get your take on that. And then I, I really like that. And I'm <laughs> to the extent that I'm going to use it the next time I sit down to write. But at the same time, I've, when I've done these kind of character background sheets, sometimes um, I find that they don't enliven the character. They kind of dull the character for me because I end up knowing kind of all this information that is sometimes irrelevant to the story. I guess one key for you is that you're placing the interview at a moment in the story rather than just a general kind of background. Yeah. And I think I would also sometimes, you know, if I feel stuck and I have sometimes also students who will say, Oh, I started writing it and then I got bored. And I think, well, what was, what was the boring part? Or even with myself, I'll sort of look at a piece and I'll think, it's okay, but like, what's not happening here? And sometimes I'll sort of say, you know, what is the risk I'm not taking? What is the thing the character needs to tell me that they've not told me or that I've not heard? Because sometimes there's that piece too. You know, I try to make that character as dimensional as I can, not just on the page, but sort of in their time with me. You know, I, I mean, it is, it is such a wild thing to create people that aren't real or that aren't Three, you know, they are to me. They're three dimensionally present, but they're they're like almost, you know, what I'm saying. But you know, these these people that I live with and spend time with, I also do a thing where I think a lot about the characters' socioeconomic backgrounds, and I find that really useful because we never talk about that in fiction. We never talk about how this character buys their lunch, and obviously, a, a person who has 
money or lives in a house, you know, where each person has their own bedroom has a very different existence than a family where they all are living, you know, in one bedroom and there isn't food available and so on. So that to me is, is very important in fiction. And it's interesting to me always that it just doesn't come to the fore when teaching or talking about where things come from. But I want to go back to what you were just asking me about sort of when you make the lists and you do all that information and so on, and you know, know tons about this person, but basically the, the thing is still flat on the page and not happening. And I think there is a way to kind of interrogate that a little bit and sort of say like, okay, so I have all these details, but what is, what is relevant to the story? And what are the tools of fiction that I can use to tell this story? So some stories I would say, you know, the time, the use of time in it, the way time moves or doesn't move is very important. And I would turn to other aspects. I would turn to the place. Where is the story set? Why is it relevant? Why do I feel compelled to tell it? Or what is it? What is the larger idea that I want to explore? And so I, I kind of would push on some of those buttons to try to sort of bring, you know, those notes to life in some way, because that can happen. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm struck by that detail that you said earlier, the small toothpaste, just as something, because the facility of your mind to be like, could it be that? Could it be this? I think that's such an important aspect of thinking through how your character functions and what their motivations are. And another thing I noticed in your writing is what I call character ticks. You might have a kinder word for that, but, um, you know, just for the sake of our listeners, like in your memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, your biological father is always saying in response to thing, fine thing, fine thing, you know, which is kind of a, it's a character tick, right? So can you talk about listening for those kinds of quirks of character? And, and then how do you integrate that into your writing, regardless of genre? That's a good question. So I think there's a couple things. One is their character ticks, which are things that are habits of the character. And in, in that example, absolutely, my bi- biological father used to say fine thing when he just didn't know what else to say. And it's funny because the character in the new novel, the big guy in the new novel, I gave him that tick. Um, mm-hmm. and, and people have already <laughs> noticed that there is that overlap, which is quite intentional on my part. Mm. So there's there's ticks and things that belong to a character. And then there's also the ticks and things that we have as writers. Um, and they are the words we use over and over again. They are sort of in some ways the images we use over and over again, or it's, you know, literally kinds of sentence structure. So to talk about the character ticks, I think and this is relevant in a way for me for, to the new book, The Unfolding. So in The Unfolding, I have this group of men that are called the forever men. And on the one hand, I want them to be a little bit like a Greek chorus and sound and and sort of behave quite similarly. On the other hand, I also very much needed to differentiate them, right? And sort of have them be recognizable, you know, their voices and so on. So in that kind of a situation, I would say in some ways, I would lean into things that could seem like ticks. I would lean into things that would seem like in some ways on the verge of caricature because I don't really ever, I want them to be individuals. That's also... With, with a book like The Unfolding, it's very important to me that as much as the book is about these large social political ideas, it also really is about people and these characters. But in that sense of leaning into their ticks, um, you know, I think it can, it, it depends on what the tick means to the character. It depends on if others notice it, if the tick is an excuse or a way of revealing tension. I mean, there's so many different things, right? So you can have a character who in a certain situation 
does say or do the same thing over and over again that could be an expression of their anxiety or could be the expression that they have a secret. I mean, in the same way that, you know, you look at tells and poker players, right? I think that's somewhat what these ticks are. And then as a writer, I would say sometimes I try to go through and like clean up my own personal writing ticks and, and do a search for, you know, certain words and make sure I didn't use the same word 43 times, which I can do. And other times I might lean into that a little bit because I want it to be kind of what I would describe as signature AM homes. And, and that might be a little bit relying on dialogue. That might be, you know, certain kinds of phrasing. Somebody once did a, a reading where they went through a lot of my books and they found the number of Diet Cokes, Valiums, uh, and Fires, <laughs> right? So it was something like, you know, 19 Valium, like, I don't know, whatever, 43 Diet Cokes and four major fires. I'm not sure what that means, but it was certainly interesting to me. So I don't know if that really answers your question. You know, I think I think being mindful of it is probably the important thing because you don't want to sort of use a tick or have a tick and not be aware of it. Right. I think that that's, you know, and I say like with students, we totally go through and definitely clean up the stories because often those early drafts are filled with, you know, t writer ticks in terms of structures and repetitions. Well, I'm interested because you write fiction and nonfiction. And since we're talking about characterization, I'm basically intrigued by how you approach characterization in a different way um, in nonfiction versus fiction. And, you know, if so, are, are there different constraints and freedoms that you have in mind, different strategies that you can share with our listeners? Right. I think that's a really important question. I would say when I'm writing nonfiction which I find more difficult than fiction. And the reason I find it more difficult is because you have to get it right <laughs> and you have to be careful and you have to be mindful. You can't bend the chronology. You can't change the order of events. And importantly, and I had this on a, on a sort of another level when I, I used to write a lot of art criticism and I would think about how if I was going to see an artist's show, on the one hand, sometimes the piece I would be writing for an art magazine might be the, one of the only sources of documentation of the show because it wouldn't be there later. And so I wanted to both represent the work as I saw it, but I also wanted to, in some ways, try to capture something about the artist's intention as I understood it or as the artist's statement might have said. So in that sense, I think one has to be attentive to the person or the character and, you know, so often when reading sort of magazine-style nonfiction, you know, it's the movie star, you know, strode into the room, his cowboy boots, blah, 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 you know, with dirt on them, so on and so forth. We rely a lot on the physical description. Um, I also used to always ask people when I would interview them for nonfiction pieces how they would describe themselves to a police sketch artist. I don't know why I did that, um, <laughs> but it was always kind of interesting trying to think, I mean, I think it's just really important to think about too, kind of what kind of piece you're writing, who is it for? So what is the audience for it? And what is it in a way that they need to know about this person that won't come through in the factual reporting or in the sort of, you know, on Wednesday, this golfer hit, you know, a golf ball as far as had ever humanly been hit, but the parts that you want to capture of, of when you sit down with them is it their gesture? Is it something about the way their face responds, the way they engage with you? What are those sort of more subtle kinds of, of cues and information that feel like you're really, you know, you know, no pun intended, drawing the person? 
And I think it's it can be difficult. I would say the other piece of it is don't rely on necessarily the surface and what comes easily. Like, you know, do the work of kind of investigating something and also when interviewing people or, you know, observing them, don't be afraid to sort of, I, mean, I was always terribly afraid, actually, that's why I don't really like doing journalism, but don't be afraid to ask questions that tell you more about the interior life of a person. Uh, people like to talk about themselves. Not sure if that answers your question. No, yeah, it does. That's great. And, you know, I'm, I'm, we're coming on the last question here. And I want to bring us full circle to the question that I started with. And uh, it's writing characters who are unlike you. And you, you did speak to this, you said you want to explore things through a different lens. And uh, perhaps that's why you're drawn to these kinds of characters. But, you know, in, in preparation for today, some of the ways that I would characterize you, you know, you're progressive, you're non traditional, you're a big thinker. Uh, I want to note that you were a writer on the L word, which gives you major status. And, and, you know, you're certainly not afraid to say it like it is or to speak your mind in your fiction. And I'm curious what you hope to achieve when you embody someone like the big guy, you know, who's like a Trumpy figure, kind of an anti-hero of the book and the unfolding. And now that the book is done and out in the world, what have you learned from the experience of walking his shoes or walking in the shoes of these old white Republican <laughs> guys? In, in the best of ways, that's a wonderfully big question. Um, the first thing I will say, which may seem slightly like a misdirect is, you know, one of the questions that comes up a lot now in teaching is who is allowed to tell a story, who has the authority to tell a story. And when I think about writing fiction, I'm concerned, I don't want my students and I don't want as a writer myself, I don't want to only write stories that I've lived. That's exactly why I'm a fiction writer is because I want to explore experiences beyond my own. My own experience, I would say, is limited. It's, to me, not that interesting. And yet I'm mindful of, you know, there are people whose stories have not yet been told, who have not yet had the exposure, and I understand their desire to be the ones to first tell their stories. So that can complicate things and so on. But I think the sort of old idea of walking a mile in someone else's shoes is actually really important, trying to inhabit the experience of others. And the first thing about that, I will say, goes to sort of the latter part of your question. For me, certainly starting as a reader, so when I began to read, I craved stories that were outside of the familiar to me, right? So whether it was stories that were set in other countries, stories where people live differently, that's how I came to know the world was through reading. So I look at now all of the stuff about banning books and limiting kids' access to books. I find that very scary because I think, for many people, that's how we come to know ourselves and our identity in relation and comparing and contrast to the rest of the world. When I think about what I'm trying to do when I'm writing about these characters who may seem, as some people would describe it, as unlikable, um, I'm not interested in their likability. I'm always interested in human behavior and what compels anybody to do what they do. So for me, writing a book in which there are these older white wealthy men who are very different from my own, you know, certainly my own existence and experience. I want to create work that prompts a conversation. I'm not in any way directing what that conversation is or what it reveals to us. But I think it's interesting that, you know, we see our world being changed by the, you know, flood of money into our political process, yet we have not heard or seen who those characters are. So 
in that way, I'm actually representing somebody who isn't represented in fiction. Um, and I try my best to, to represent them as humans. In some way, someone would say, it's interesting how much compassion they found themselves feeling for these people. I think also just because a person sometimes does bad things or is what we might call a bad person, we all are very complicated and nuanced. And so I don't think necessarily that a person is entirely bad. Um, that doesn't mean there's not some people I'm scared of, that there's not some people I definitely wouldn't write about because it's just too overwhelming for me. But I'm curious and I want to know who the other is. And I want to talk about it and engage with it and encourage others to whatever that other is for somebody. Well, thank you, AM. Thanks for all of your books and, and good luck with the unfolding. Yeah, thank you, AM. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a treat. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Brooke, this week's book trend is about the rise of the story graph, which is a popular alternative to Goodreads. And we're featuring it this week because I've now heard buzz about it from two crucial people. One is an executive at a big five publisher who is in charge of envisioning the future of the book. And the other is an avid teenage reader who will likely determine the future of the book. <laughs> so a bit about Goodreads, which I've used um, since what seems like the very beginning of the internet. Goodreads bills itself as the world's largest site for readers and book records recommendations and it definitely is but size can be problematic and a lot of users have expressed increasing discontent and part of this discontent stems from the fact that goodreads is owned by amazon and that's one big reason for people who, who you know don't want to support amazon sort of you know take over the world essentially but also a lot of the users complain about stagnation on goodreads because it's not it, it hasn't really visually changed that much in years you know and it and it, it feels like an old creaky site from the beginning of the internet actually so now there's storygraph yeah i mean it's definitely a newcomer on the scene i i guess it launched in 2019 but officially released in 2021 so i confess to not using the platform but i signed up for an account in preparation for the trend and i enjoyed the survey that i had to take to help them target what kind of books i might be interested in it's a pretty robust survey so i'll be eager to see what kinds of books they recommend for me uh, and one of the things it's notably lacking is the community aspect that goodreads brings but um that's about the only downside and for a lot of people that might not even be a downside at this point you know people love its interface the fact that they keep it simple sticking to just list making and recommendations uh, and another thing that users love is that it provides a did not finish button which is increasingly a thing with reviewers and I guess normalizes the experience of not finishing a book or at least acknowledges how prevalent a thing that actually is 
Yeah, and another important feature it offers is that you can actually import all of your Goodreads data, which is a big deal for major users of Goodreads who've spent years tracking and cataloging their reads, um, much like me, <laughs> um, or major users, you know, who their reviews live on Goodreads and they wouldn't want to lose those, of course. Um, and the site, it's growing. It's got, you know, hundreds of thousands of users closing in on 350,000 as of this summer, but it's very tiny compared to Goodreads, which has about 90 million registered users. So there's a lot of ground to catch up if they want to be a Goodreads. I'm not sure that they actually do, but you know, if they do, they've got a long way to go. It's really astounding, 90 million, by the way. Uh, it's yeah. just amazing to see what kind of reach you can have on these kinds of platforms. And our favorite trend watcher, Jane Friedman, recently noted in Hot Sheet that it will probably take a bookselling platform to partner with them or invest in the Storyograph in order to launch to those kinds of heights. And so she had suggested that platform might be Bookshop, um, which obviously would be a great partnership, kind of an indie David to fight the Amazon Goliath. Yeah, that's a natural fit. I would love that. But I do, you know, sometimes I do wonder if, they, if they're looking for dominance. I'm thinking of that word. And it, it seems that having a huge community isn't necessarily the best way to define having a nourishing community. And I'm thinking of nearly all of the social media platforms, which have prioritized growth over the community they're supposedly serving. So one thing interesting thing I read about, uh, for instance, on, on, on Goodreads was that Authors are fed up with it because they believe that the reviews aren't reliable. And Goodreads allows reviewers to leave reviews for books they, they clearly haven't read and to rank books with low rankings, you know, like one or two stars without any means for vetting those reviews. And so if Storygraph focuses on nourishing its community and spreading an ethos of trust and a love of reading, then maybe it won't become a place where such bad behavior exists. And I'm obviously putting words into their strategy and <laughs> hopes. But what we've seen over and over again on the Internet is community sites that abuse the community in the end because they want to make money off the community. And I get some inklings from Storygraph that it's not exactly fitting into that mode. I hope so. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think in the beginning, no one hopes to start out that way. And it sort of naturally happens as a result of scaling and, and desire to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, if you've used the story graph and you love it, let us know. Uh, if you're not on the platform, maybe give it a shot. Uh, we've talked a lot about why users like it, but it seems to me that it could be summed up in a word at this moment, which is nuance. Uh, and book lovers do want to be turned on to things that excite them and those recommendations, even if they're algorithmic of course, need to consider the reader. And it sounds like that's what they're doing, at least for now anyway. And Grant, I feel like we're doing that too. We certainly strive to. We're finding the books and the authors that we love and the topics that we care about. Uh, and we hope that they inspire you week in and week out. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed the first of our Craft-Minded series. We'll be back with another one next week and then another one after that and another one after that. Six weeks of craft topics lined up for you. So until next week. 